Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Chris Seslin, owner of Osmati Games, publisher of the wildly popular One Deck Dungeon. Recently, they launched One Deck Galaxy on Kickstarter and already crushed their goal. Chris, welcome to The Binge. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic, my friend. Uh, wow, this game is absolutely crushing it. Uh, people that are watching live can see on screen we're at a, we're almost at $162,000 in this campaign. Still 24 days to go. Man, this is one of those times when you got to look at the numbers and just say, how, how high can it go? Okay. Well, the numbers look much better in Canadian. So <laughs> <laughs> they always do. Yeah. The exchange. I, I always like to quote the Canadian numbers because they're always larger. Right. But still, that's pretty impressive. Like you got to be pretty mm -hmm. pumped. Yeah. No, uh, we had a really good response on day one. Um, I think we had over like 16, 1700 backers uh, just in the first day. And that was all purely organic. Uh, we haven't wow. spent an advertising cent yet. Gosh. And so how did you get into this? Like, cause you've done a lot of campaigns. Like when I look on Kickstarter, you've launched 22 campaigns. So you've been in the game for a little while now. When did this all start for you? Uh, for, for games, uh, like I've wanted to design games since I was a kid. Um, yeah. you know, uh, seven or eight, we had a Commodore 64 and we learned basic and typing in thousands of lines of code to make really trivial, bad games. Um, but, uh, you know, eventually computer games got more and more complicated. And uh, the idea of a one-man shop wasn't a thing by the time I got out of college. Hmm. Um, you know, that was like the peak of the EA era of big video game studios, yeah. giant games. I'm like, hey, board games are fun too. Um, <laughs> so I kind of got in that way. Uh, went to a convention called Origins, met some folks from Looney Labs, uh, played Flux and was like, hey, these are all neat games. I can learn from all this stuff. Uh, that was kind of my end to the, to the actual tabletop industry. And then what, what were you doing? Like, did you have uh, like a day job at the time you were doing this? Or when did that kind of transition going from, you know, kind of playing games and being interested in the hobby to actually creating your own game? Yeah, so um, my degree is in computer science. So nice. uh, I, I was doing various programming jobs, consulting, uh, the excitement of working for giant companies that make cell phone apps for other giant companies. Uh, but always in the background, you know, I was still making little games and that slowly built up to the point uh, where I was like, hey, uh, this game that I just made is actually making real money. And this was, uh, we didn't play test this at all, right before Kickstarter was getting ready to uh, blow up the way board games are yeah. funded. Um, and that's when I went full time. And right after that is when Kickstarter started up. And what year was that? Uh, it was a process between 2009 and 2011. Okay. Um, between that and innovation was oh. the uh, last big thing we did before Kickstarter. So uh, at least a decade in the industry, which is uh, that's so you're a, you're a, I guess a veteran, I guess we call them a eh, with uh, 10 years in the industry. Yeah. Grizzled, uh, uh, grizzled veteran. Yeah. So that first game you created, so was it something, was it self-published or did you work with others or how did you kind of get it out as Kickstarter was just kind of starting at the time? Yeah. So before Kickstarter, we had to do things like raise money from banks or family members yeah. or win the lottery or all of these <laughs> things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, 
uh, I was lucky enough that my parents had a little bit of money left over, uh, left over, a little bit of money uh, to spare to help me do a small print run of a game, you know, like $10,000, nothing, yeah. nothing huge. Cause back then production was cheap and freight was wonderful. You just yeah. shipped containers from China to the U S for like five bucks. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a good time. Um, so yeah, I made a couple of silly little games, uh, gold thief, whack a cat girl. We didn't play test this at all. You know, we, we go to like anime conventions and sell them. Mm. Um, and by the sheerest random luck, we didn't play test this at all, which is a very silly, dumb game where there's black text on white cards looked a little bit like cards against humanity, which had just taken off. Yeah. And Amazon decided to say, if you like this game, you'd probably also like that game. And we got a massive quantity of synergy sales off of that. Wow. Uh, and that kind of launched us uh, as a company. So it was like the, the pre Kickstarter luck world. <laughs> And now how big is the company? Is it, uh, is it still yourself and it's kind of more bolt on kind of as you need it, or have you actually built up like the staff on in, in your company? Uh, so there's, there's three of us full time, uh, myself, my partner, Julia, and uh, our art director, Rob. Um, and we have a number of freelancer contractor people sure. who, you know, when there's right now we're working on a game called thousand one odysseys, which uh, has a lot of writing required. So we have freelance yeah. writers that are, they're helping out with that. Um, but artists as needed and uh, video people, all the stuff that's all sort of part-time things, but yeah, full, three, three full-time people. Now for the listeners, um, if you talk about Asmati games, is there a genre that you would best describe your company represents? Um, so it's funny, it's kind of transformed uh, mm. over the past 15 yeah. years. When we started, it was very much light, silly fare. Um, but one of the things that I always had as a core design principle was, if you're playing the game, you should be having fun playing the game. Um, I always hated, you know, if you get into like a three hour game and you're like an hour in, you realize you've lost, you still got two hours left to go. So that's never okay. a fun feeling. Uh, it's even worse when it's a party game and you're yeah. five minutes into a 30 minute game. You're like, Oh, I don't want to play 25 more minutes of this. Um, and that was, that's really what led to the, the whole, we didn't play test this thing. That game ends in a minute. Uh, yeah. you, you can't be losing any longer than the game is going on. Um, but even though that's a tremendously silly game, uh, that fed a lot of the design principles we had for innovation, which was our first big real game hit. Um, which is Carl Chudik's design, but I helped him develop it. Innovation is a game that is thinky, but uh, you're always in it if you're still playing. That That's like the mm. rule. Anything can happen. Um, and so that evolved us into, you know, more thinky, a little more strategy, still nothing. We don't, we don't make games that are, you know, two, three hours long generally, but um, got a little more crunch in there. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, um, this whole idea of making sure uh, people are still having fun, even when, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're partway in. And uh, listeners of this show know my love-hate relationship with Settlers of Catan is that's one <laughs> of the reasons in our family, right, is you get the bad kind of uh, placement at the beginning and you could be Trouble. cooked for the entire game. And you could know that like, hey, you know, I'm going to just sit here for the next two and a half hours and watch other people have fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right which can uh, can be pretty painful for people so it's cool to hear when a uh you know a developer is saying no you know we're gonna make we're gonna do something about that we're gonna make sure that we bring that fun back in for everybody playing so it uh 
you know, so that there's some enjoyment throughout the entire process. So what led into this newest game that you've created? I know that you've got your one deck dungeon and this is kind of like, is it, is it, is it like a part two or is it kind of using similar mechanics, but it's a whole new story? Like how would you describe kind of what brought you to the one deck galaxy? Yeah, so it's more, it's not a straight sequel. It's not a reskin. It's more of like a successor is what I'd call it. And if you okay. want to be super cliche, you could say it's the spiritual successor to One Deck Dungeon. Welcome mm-hmm. to One Deck Galaxy in space. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, what got me to Dungeon originally? I I like dice. Dice are fun. And yeah. dice are maligned in a lot of corners as being too random or... Yep. Uh, uninteresting, not strategic enough. Uh, and I wanted uh, with One Deck Dungeon originally to make a, you know, make make dice game that has some luck, but has a lot more skill and interesting puzzliness um, that makes it uh, makes it interesting and, and and fun to play lots and lots of times. Um, and One Deck Galaxy is a further evolution of that. So. In one dungeon, you're, you're fighting monsters and stuff, and a bad roll means you're going to get bonked over the head by an ogre or a dragon. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people like that. Some people are like, ah, I hate when I lose the dragon after playing for half an hour. I'm like, well, it's how dungeons work. Uh, and to be fair, <laughs> one deck dungeon has a lot of ways to mitigate your dice luck. You have skills that transform yeah. dice and stuff. Uh, but with Galaxy, I want to take that even further. Um, one deck Galaxy is very much a game about taking your role of a bunch of dice and deciding what to do with it rather than evaluating whether that was a success or not. Uh, so your ones are as good as your sixes. They can they just do different things. Mm. Um, and uh, we had the opportunity to extend the 1000 Odyssey's uh, universe. And we had a bunch of beautiful art uh, that we could throw into here. Um, we have a really vibrant setting for it, which I think is fun. So you got this rat, and so if people who go on the page are going to see this radish dude. So that's why I call him the <laughs> radish dude. But what, what is with the radish dude? Because he is in some of your other games, right? And yeah, it's yeah. kind of cool to see that thread, uh, you know, go from one game to to another game, like continue that universe on. But who, who are the radish people? <laughs> the radish people are the plum plum, the, uh, the noble vegetable citizens of the planet Brumagum. Yeah. Uh, and they're sort of... Uh, they're the friendliest people you will meet in space. Uh, they just want to hug everybody because they're big, fluffy radishes. Um, and uh, they're, they're both in 1001 Odysseys and in uh, Galaxy, which is kind of a, a prequel to Odysseys. Um, in uh, One Deck Galaxy, you're telling the story of the formation of the Federation. And uh, in 1001 Odysseys, the human space explorers find the federation and sort of interact with all these races but yeah they're and, they're they're cuties and so the and this game is a, it's a co-op game is it correct yeah and then this kind of one to two player expansion to four how does that kind of come into play can you explain that a little bit more yeah so uh it's actually similar to dungeon we uh the, the game box itself you can play alone or with two um yeah. each of the the heroes in dungeon or the home worlds in galaxy have a one player or two player side so that they're balanced for a proper game um what we've done with both games is if you combine two copies of the game you can shuffle together all the components and play a four player game uh, by using mm. the two player sides of all the stuff um this was a sort of a simple tack on mode to dungeon. We just said, yeah, you draw twice as many cards and 
decide who's going to fight what. Um, but in Galaxy, we have the opportunity to design the game from the ground up with four player in mind. Uh, and you wind up with this uh, elaborate table setup where everyone's sitting at corners and you're sharing dice with the two neighbors that you have. So mm. I have two people that I'm cooperating with, but we all have to be collaborating together to get all the things done. Uh, and it creates a wonderful crosstalk situation of strategizing. And it's not the kind of situation where one player can alpha talk all over, talk all over everybody, which is great. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I call them the puppet masters, mm-hmm. right? So you're playing games with people and it's like, oh, this is a co-op game. I'll put that in quotations, co-op. Yeah. It's like, I'm playing this game and you guys are going to be my little minions as I play it, right? And that's that's never fun for the minions. So yeah, yeah, it's kind of cool that you've been, found a way to kind of mitigate. I think it's kind of cool how you can take two games. So you take the same game. If you got two copies, you can mix it together mm-hmm. and it turns it into a four-player game. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and you know, uh, Galaxies and Dungeon are both relatively cheap, so it's not uh, not a huge outlay to get there, uh, yeah. which is good. So nice, compact little boxes. Yeah, that's that's wild. And then, so some of the marketing that you've done for this, I, I, I see that you've got a backer kit uh, for. Your, so, are they doing your your ads for you? Like you mentioned at the beginning, that you had a lot of people kind of carry over organically from the universe you've built, probably other games you've done, and so forth. Maybe mm-hmm. your current email list. Um, is it is a backer kid? I guess is doing now your amplification of your social media or yeah yeah. So um, everything up to now has been straight organic reach. We tweeted, we used our mailing lists, we used our existing backer lists, and said, hey everybody, we're launching One Deck Galaxy. And you know we've been building Kickstarter followers for a couple of years because this project's yeah. been almost ready to launch since last January. Um, some sort of weird thing happened with the world and that delayed things. I don't know what it was. Yeah. And shipping rates <laughs> and so forth too. Did that impact your costing at all? Cause I mean, yeah. I, I know myself uh, as, yeah. a, as a publisher, I've got a game right now that I'm trying to get here from uh, China and mm-hmm. all the uh, shipping costs doubled from yep. what was originally quoted doubled. Right. Mm-hmm. So it is, uh, we're doing works. everything. Yeah. We're doing everything we can not to push that along to our backers, we'll probably eat most of it. Um, but it is a real concern. So how has it impacted you with this game? Cause this game you would have been planning kind of before the shipping rates went crazy, right? Yeah. And I mean, uh, material rates too. Um, this yeah. year brought a straight raise in pretty much every material cost uh, associated with gaming paper, plastic, all of it. Um, you know, any place from 10 to 25%. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, one deck dungeon was $25. One deck galaxy is going to be 30 uh, at retail. Um, so yeah. a minor bump, but it has a lot more stuff in it anyway. So it's probably fine. Um, but yeah, we had to be real careful and we're doing the thing where we say, Hey, we're going to charge shipping in the backer kit phase later on. Once mm-hmm. we know what a boat actually costs in seven or eight months, we're ready to bring it to you. Um, I think that's probably the smartest way to deal with it is just say, rather than pass on an uncertain cost, pass on the uncertainty and say, as long as you're okay paying whatever it costs in six months, come on board. That's interesting. Um, So, you know, if you take a typical campaign, usually mm -hmm. within like a month or two of it closing, they'll put the, the, Mm -hmm. you know, pledge manager out, right. And have people fill it out and collect the, the funds. This is an interesting tact. This, I might actually steal this idea. This is very interesting. So, <laughs> so you, you, you're, you're pushing your pledge management out, which is when right. you collect your shipping to closer to when you're actually going to fulfill. 
And that way you're insulating yourself against the variation in, in shipping. And it might come down, quite frankly. The shipping costs might be yeah, lower it, at that point too, like right? That's what we're telling our backers. Like, we don't know. Like, it could be the case that in after Chinese mm-hmm. New Year, uh, maybe everything is mostly back to normal. Yeah. And uh, container costs might have come back down. I mean, honestly, it has to. Because if if container costs kept going up, we'd be talking about the collapse of much bigger industries than board games. Because uh, this is killing yeah. everybody right now. Yeah, you might um, start seeing even manufacturing move mm-hmm. away from China, right? You might actually see people saying, okay, well, yep. we're going to have these local pop-up manufacturers domestically. Uh, and although it'll cost more to manufacture the game, the offset and savings from you know not having to pay for these containers coming across the ocean more than covers the, the differential, right? Yeah, I mean, we, we do a bunch of our card game printing in the US. So uh, we've used them in the past for complicated things too. And maybe the costs will drive that back to happen again. It's uh, It'll be interesting. Yeah. And then, so how big is your email list now? You've you got 22 campaigns. It's got to be quite large, right? Uh, our direct email list is a few thousand. Our backer hmm. kit one is a bigger than that. Um, we don't harvest the list directly. We only take people who sign up to our list. And oh, interesting. Okay. That so, means that even though it's less people, there are people who actually want to be there. And we found that it converts much better. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause you see some people say, and I've, I've talked to some publishers that have said, well, you know, I've got mice type on my Kickstarter page saying, you know, if by back in the game, you're here, you, know, you can opt out if you want, but we're going to put you on the initial list at the very least. Um, but that's, that's kind of a more responsible way to approach it, right. To say, no, 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 we're going to take the opt-ins as our email list and yeah. uh, the backer kit list is the backer kit list. And that'll kind of vary as the different uh, games get published. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> being from tech, I'm generally averse to spammy type things. And uh, yeah. believe me, running a Kickstarter campaign, I've had about 20 different companies be like, hello, we will market your Kickstarter by taking 20% of its gross proceeds. We promise at least five backers. Uh, yeah. Doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah. Is that a piece of advice you would offer to maybe budding uh, developers out there, people looking to do their own games, the important, because what I'm hearing from most in the industry is your email list is kind of king, right? That's yeah. your, the thing that you own. If you've done it properly, that's your loyal following, right? Mm-hmm. So you're always going to have people drop off and you do an e-blast out. You're going to have, you know, a handful that are going to drop out and unsubscribe. But of for the most part, you know, that list is a list that you can control. Whereas yeah. your pre-signed up links on Kickstarter, those uh, you don't own. Uh, those people get communicated to twice, once when you launch and once mm-hmm. when you're about to uh, close your campaign. So if you're going to put funds into growing anything, uh, I mean, Chandler Copenhaver, who you would know if you're using BackerKit, you know, he says even on his end that um, your email list is kind of trumps all that. You should really focus on getting that that list up and then continue to not spam, but continue to engage, I guess, your your audience and your following. So they do come along with you from game to game. Yeah, it's hard because it's very different for people who are already established as opposed to people who aren't because, you know, we've, we've made a couple dozen games. People know who we are in general. And Mm. if I post on Reddit, it's fine because I've been part of the, our board games community for 10 years. If I post on board game geek in a promotional fashion, it's fine because I've been with them forever. A lot of people who are just coming in, they try and post be like, Hey friends, check out my Kickstarter. And they just get instantly banned because it's a promotional post. Um, So there is another element of, if you want to be able to post in those communities, 
be a part of them first. It is a yeah. huge benefit if you are allowed to post in those places uh, because you spent the time investing and in being part of those communities. Um, and I think a place where this is really going to grow in the future uh, beyond the email social media realm is Discord uh, hmm. and Discord type communities. They are growing like wildfire. Uh, yeah. And if you have your own Discord for your company, um, I think that's it's quickly going to become a thing that is that is very relevant uh, for for tabletop. That's great advice. I, I, I echo your comment about you know uh, joining and then spamming mm-hmm. right away, and that goes even for <laughs> Facebook Facebook pages too, right? Or Facebook groups. Yeah. I mean, we even have that on Board Game Binge. We'll have people join, and the first thing they do as soon as they join is start spamming their Kickstarter coming out. Yep. And it's like, well, delete. Yep. Right, we're gonna we're gonna whack that, and uh, now we're gonna put that person on a um, uh, that they everything has to be reviewed before it, it goes up. Um, I was that guy when I first got into the industry, right? And it got me <laughs> nowhere, that guy, right? Yeah, of course we have. So you gotta learn. Sometimes you have to learn the hard way, right? Mm-hmm. And um, but if you if you go through the steps and you listen to the advice of developers like yourself, we say no, no, no. Like you know, start way, way in advance, engaging people, give as much as you take. Uh, it will come, it will come back to you. Um, you know, the number of people now that I have that will interact with us or, or kind of do us a solid because mm-hmm. I know that we're give, 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 giving um, is a lot more than it was, you know, three years ago when we first got into the game. So, you know, it, it was what people don't want to hear when they have a game that they're going to launch in six months and they're just starting, <laughs> right? They don't want to hear that, but it's unfortunately the truth. What are some other things that you are you would suggest people do with their campaigns if they're getting into this industry for the first time? So, you know, email list is one. Discord is a great one. Um, I'm guilty of that myself. I have a Discord channel, barely use it, but uh, I probably should use it more. Uh, what are some other things that you would suggest that, uh, you know, you've come now from the school of hard knocks, right? Mm-hmm. You've, you learn from failure and you learn from success. And sometimes the best learnings are from the failure. What are some of the things you failed really well at? Um, <laughs> so there's this little game called Descent, which has got an app version. Everyone loves it. Uh, we tried to do that about eight years ago and it did not go well. Um, yeah, but that, uh, that was not a great failure. We'll, we'll, we're actually going to get back to that in a couple of years. Um, what I would say, uh, is if you run a campaign and it doesn't work, maybe reevaluate what you want to do with that campaign. Uh, launching a campaign that has a $20,000 goal. And reaching that goal with $22,000 means that you're going to spend a ton of effort making no money. There's, there's no profit in that campaign. Yeah. Make a tiny campaign. Make a campaign that is for 100 copies of your game from Game Crafter. Mm-hmm. Make the small version of it. Get it out to some people. Have them play the game. You're going to make the same amount of money. You're not going to have a garage full of stuff. And if people like that game, they will start talking about it. And then you can launch Kickstarter for a real version of it. And suddenly you've got a hundred evangelists for your game. Um, and if you're not already established, I feel like the, the small run Kickstarter, and I've seen some people start doing this, is a way better way to get a foothold into the industry. Because either you'll end up being able to do it yourself or a real publisher will say, hey, they made a really cool game that they made like 200 copies of. Yeah, I should publish a, a, a fully arted version of that game. Um, and in a world where we can't just go to conventions and be pitching to everybody because it's not really happening right now, uh, I feel like that's 
a much more interesting way to get noticed and one that doesn't give you a garage disaster as many $20,000 <laughs> Kickstarter people have had. Yeah. And I, I think part of that too, is uh, when I see the ones where they've got a goal of $20,000, mm-hmm. I sometimes ask myself, do they need $20,000 or do they want $20,000? Yeah. All right. Cause those are two different things. And um, again, I, you know, the number of times you see Kickstarter where somebody's first time in, they see some of the numbers that can happen in this industry mm-hmm. and they say, Oh, I should, my game is probably as good as that one. Maybe I, I, I should be able to do at least 20,000. They put that on there. And then it might crash and burn and fail where if they had to put what they actually needed, which maybe was only $4,000, it might've been seen as a huge success. Right. So it's kind of just the, the way you look at the same thing could either be a huge success or it could be a huge failure um, based on hitting the exact same numbers in, in funding. It's all based on that goal that you set. I kind of echo that of creating something small. Um, and that's tough to do if somebody's only created one game. So they've got kind of their one shot. Um, but if they can create a small offshoot game that they can use to kind of test the waters, there's so much you learn going through the process the first time. They will absolutely 100% make your second time through the uh, through the queue that much more efficient and that much uh, better for you. So start small if you can. Somebody in the uh, chat lobby said, we'd rather be nine people's favorite thing. That's a good point. So that's stock caress in the chat lobby. That's sorceress. 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 Sorry. Sorceress. Sorceress. All these awesome spellings. Uh, yeah, it's true. You know what? If you can if you can get 10 people that absolutely love your game, that's way better than 100 people mm-hmm. hating your game. So that's some good advice. What are some other things that you've, you've kind of figured it along the way that maybe you didn't know on your first kind of four or five campaigns? Um, but- in, in line with that, it's okay if honor people hate your game. Uh, yeah. You know, ideally more people will like it. But one of the one of the biggest things in game design that you can get stuck uh, on is trying to please everybody. You, you can't and you yeah. shouldn't. Like, I don't want to make a game that every single person likes. That's not possible. Yeah. And it's probably going to be an extremely boring small game um, that doesn't have any depth. Some make Make the game for the people who like your game. Yeah. Uh, focus on that. And if those people really like it, it means you've succeeded at doing that thing. And probably more people will like it anyways, because it's more, you know, it does the thing it wants to do. Um, One thing I don't get is what's with the hate on the dice. Like I, 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 I can't get my head around this. I've got some dice in yeah. some of my games and I've, I've been like at a play test night where I've put a game. I always got dice and the person across the table is just absolutely crapping on it. Because they can't control every single nuance of the game, right? That there's any randomness in there at all. Oh my God, that's the end of the world. It's like, okay, well, this game is not for you, obviously, right? If that's mm-hmm. if that's the person's style. But I, there, there's a strong pocket in the board game industry that are just dice haters. I, I don't get it. Well, <laughs> I really there's, don't. It's sort of like a, a generational fear, which has been passed down of yeah. being stuck in that five hour monopoly game or that mm. infinite risk game where the game is really controlled purely by the dice uh, and there's not a ton of strategy involved. Yeah. Um, and it's it sort of kept that mythical dice are bad nature through the ages to now um, when, you know, we've had dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of brilliant designs of things that use dice in clever and interesting ways that aren't just pure randomizers. Um, uh, I think, you know, a lot of people just get stuck in that and they're like, ah, I I know that this thing is bad so I can focus on the the fact that dice are bad Uh, and they get stuck there. 
I think it's okay to not have control over everything in life. Exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and especially when it comes to entertainment, you know, it's kind of like when you watch a movie that's, uh, you know, one of these kind of B-level action movies and you're just sitting there eating your, and you're just eating your popcorn. You're not thinking, you're sitting back relaxing and just enjoying yourself. And I see games the same way. I think there's a time and place for super heavy, super thinky mm-hmm. strategy games, but there's also a lot of place out there for people that just want to relax not think too hard and look at it more as a social event, right? So that's the cool thing about the industry is there is so many different genres out there that there's, it's like beer. There's something for everybody, right? <laughs> Somebody that says they don't like beer, they haven't tried every beer. People say they don't like board games. Well, you haven't tried every board game genre out there. So 22 campaigns you've done. What is next on deck for you? Obviously you guys are cranking out games at a fair clip uh, on average to a year. What, what do you guys got coming, coming up next? Yeah, so we kind of stalled um, intentionally for the whole mm. pandemic. Uh, yeah, we were ready to launch this campaign last year. I said, let's wait. Um, both this will give me more time to balance it, and also, I don't really want to release in the middle of the pandemic because my opinion is that all the games that came out in 2020 are largely going are still in shrink on all of our shelves for one, um, and. Like when I'm coming back to game nights in a few weeks, I'm going to go for the brand new thing, not the new thing I haven't played yet from a year ago. Uh, I think that's going to happen a lot. I didn't want to release into it. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're working on Galaxy and that'll come out uh, middle of next year. Uh, the other big project we're working on, of course, the Thousand One Odysseys, which is the big sort of choose your own adventure style narrative branching storytelling game. Um, and we're doing all the writing for that. And that should be out next year too. Um, aside from that, we've got uh, a couple of prototypes from Carl Chudik, uh, who designed innovation that were really eager to get out there. Finally, uh, a GNC, we did a beta test of at Gen Con two years ago. And we're like, we'll yeah. release it soon. And everything happened. Um, so that's on there too. Uh, and so is that a Kickstarter plan for maybe the first quarter of the year or? Possibly. Yeah. Uh, we haven't decided if we'll kickstart it or if we'll do a, a short run, just uh, straight up. Straight to retail, um, maybe, or yeah, it, it's a cool little game. Three hundred islands in the Aegean Sea. Oh, that's cool. They I all like have the sound crazy of effects. Yeah. So, if somebody wants to follow Asmati Games, how best do they join your community? Um, easiest thing to do is to go to uh, if you want if you want to hit the Galaxy Kickstarter, go to onedeckgalaxy.com and it'll bring you to the Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're looking for the company in general, if you go to asmatigames.com. Uh, you can sign up for our mailing list uh, and Hey, you'll be one of those treasured mailing list backers. Um, but yeah, we're on Facebook and Twitter as at Osmati games everywhere. And then Asmati games uh, on discord as well. Uh, we don't have a public discord server yet. I'm a giant liar and that that's very important, but we're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're getting there. Uh, that's, that's one of my plans for next year is to have an actual uh, discord community. Mostly what we've used it for before is uh convention planning for our team while we're yeah. on site oh very cool well hey i want to wish you all the best of this game i Thanks. can't wait to see how this is going to end man you're 24 days ago you guys are crushing it this should be a massive campaign for you mm-hmm. and uh, i wish you guys all the best of success can't wait to see how it turns out next year and to see what you guys got coming down the pipe maybe we'll get you back on the podcast uh mid next year talking about some of these new projects sure thanks so much it was great being here awesome chris you take care cheers This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. 
If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.